I like a really good life, and I have a very good life. I knew I was a bit different as well, though. You know, you felt different. I did feel different. I was doing TV shows, radio shows. I had my own collection. I had the business. Oh, God, how shit is that life? And I lost me in that. There wasn't times where it wasn't fantastic. There was. But where was I? I didn't stop to breathe. We've really fucked this planet for you guys. We were blind. We were blind consumers living a life while we slowly killed the planet and our well-being. So it has to be you guys that go, no. My mother died when I was very suddenly of, of um, encephalitis when I was 16. And she was the centre of, you know, the world. And I had to grow up very quickly. And all that misbehaviour went into sort of responsibility. This is this is really painful. Yet somehow I, I wasn't able to express that. Mary Portis. You may know her from the high street. You may know her from business or you may know her from her books. But the experience I had with her today is honestly incredible. She is hilarious. She is smart. She's witty. And she is willing to be honest at all costs. And that really speaks to one of the central principles she'll talk about today, which is this idea of the importance of being true to yourself. She's made the mistake that 99% of people that are listening to this are going to make are currently making or are in the process of overcoming, which is living a life that isn't true to who you actually are. And today she's also going to tell you about an idea that will be fairly radical to some people, especially people who are building and have built big businesses, which is based on her new book, Rebuild, how to thrive in the new kindness economy. She has achieved things that most people in business would never even dream of. She's been a media star. She's been a political figure at times. And through it all, through the hardest of times, through grief, through trauma, through broken marriages, through public scrutiny in the press, she has emerged as an incredibly outspoken, honest, humble, intellectually challenging and stimulating, humorous, inspiration, leader, entrepreneur and public figure. I laughed, I realised and I was deeply inspired. And you will be too. So without further ado, I'm Stephen Bartlett, and this is The Diary of a CEO. I hope nobody's listening. But if you are, then please keep this to yourself. Mary, um, you're a very stand-up person with a very stand-up personality, and you've managed to achieve some pretty remarkable things in your life. And it, from a place of curiosity that always makes me wonder what it is that made you different. And I like to always start with people's childhoods and their upbringings, because I tend to believe that that's the most influential part of their life, typically. So is there anything from your um, younger years that you think has been defining in the person you went on to become? Um, I, well, of course, I think that, that that probably is the case. Um, I was one of five kids, mm. but I was the fourth out of five. Um, and, uh, we were, my parents were Irish, had come over in the late fifties from Ireland. My father was a Protestant. My mother was a Catholic. So, you know, wow. from Belfast, from the North of, um, um, of Ireland. So this wasn't, you know, they, they, uh, this was a time when that wasn't looked on to happily. So they came over and chose Watford to live in. 
Interesting. <laughs> it could have been Dagenham, but they chose Watford. Those were the two options, and um, we're kind of proud. George Michael, Elton John. So we're we're kind of and a good football team. But I think um, I think looking back on my childhood, my my elder siblings. We often talk about this. We're very very close. There's sort of a two year one year gap between us all. And I was the fourth. And I remember vividly thinking, I'm not the eldest. I'm not the youngest. I'm not the first girl. And I didn't feel particularly special. Um, and, but so I was very um, naughty as a child, you know, just spent a lot of time up to pranks and trying to find my voice, I think, really. <clears throat> very loving household. Um, my father was very high, highly strong, um, hardworking. And my mother was um, poetical, musical, and um, was pushed us academically, put us all through the grammar school system. <laughs> I remember my sister coming home from school and saying, I'm number two in the class. I looked at the register and my mother said, and who was number one? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so I think that gives you a sort of a taste of what, what life was like. But um, we were very close. And um but my mother died when I was very suddenly of, of um, encephalitis when I was 16. And she was the centre of, you know, the world. And um, just by the, the the place where I was in the family, my elder siblings, my elder brother, Michael, was at university and my sister was just about to go and work, at, um, go training at UCH. And my other brother was hairdressing. And so I ended up looking after, being the one at home and looking after my younger brother. And I had to grow up very quickly and all that misbehaviour went into sort of responsibility. That's what I think happened anyway. I mean, you know, and I, I just took on the role of the, the, I wouldn't say parent because I was not very good at that at all, but the one who managed stuff at home. It, and even when my elder siblings then came back and to this day, you know, it's Mary's house that we meet at or... Really? Yeah. Really interesting because I'm I'm the youngest of four and I feel like I took on that role where I feel like I had, because my parents were absent by the time I was 10. Why were they absent? My mum just decided that, I think she decided that she'd raised all of the kids already. You know, like, yeah. it's almost like they've, oh, I've done my, my work as a parent. All my brothers and sisters were older than me. So she would then just sleep at her shop because she was getting burgled a lot at her shop getting lots of like racial attacks on her shop. So she would literally go and sleep in the back room after after work, wake up, work, go sleep in the back room. But she had a 10-year-old at home. Yeah. And so I just learned this huge, I had this huge void of independence. I became super naughty, mm. breaking into my school. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. I set fire to mine. <laughs> that was by accident. I thought I could it do a little bonfire like under the wooden steps. But yeah. <laughs> oh my God. The nuns. I was run, I looked after by nuns. They Desperate. The passing of your parents mm. at a young age, mm. how does that impact you? Well, mine sort of went from, from uh, you know, this terrible traumatic... My mother was the central figure, um, this sort of fiery redhead who just was the backbone. And I don't look back in hindsight and go, oh, amazing, but she was. I was just about baked, just about baked. You know, she I'd had enough of love and time from her at 16. I think my younger brother, Lawrence, at 14, that was terribly difficult. So you at 10, I'm with you. I can feel that. that that's 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 a very lonely place for a young boy. Um, but my father remarried within a year. I used to come home from school and he'd be crying, you know, and, uh, we'd, and I was actually then 
finding Lawrence and I were managing his grief. <laughs> we were these young kids, really, you know. And he remarried very quickly. And, um, and then he died of a heart attack nine months after getting married. But in doing so, left the family home to the new wife of nine months. So we were all out on our own, really, after that. And that I think I look back now, I look back now, and I didn't look back for a long while, didn't look back at all. But I look back now and I see that I was in grief for about four years. I mean, I used to walk to school crying and then just get on the bus and smile. It's grief, but I don't, you know, somehow I suppressed that and um, put it into a life that I never dreamt I'd have, that's for sure, from that. Did you ever get help with that grief? Never. I remember the headmistress saying, you know, if you ever want to come and talk. And the headmistress was a nun called Sister St. James, who was, you know, this wonderful... Actually, I really, really liked her. She was pretty scary by most standards, but I really liked her. Um, But that was it. I wasn't going to go and sit in the headmistress's office and have a sob, especially with a nun, and have to beat my chest and say about ten Hail Marys. (laughs) So I didn't, no. I don't think any of us did. This was the late 70s. I do remember, it's funny, like last night I um, I got a little eight-year-old and he's into Elvis Presley for whatever and I put on some YouTube and we were dancing to Elvis Presley. He was trying to do the little movements and I said, he said, Elvis died, didn't he, Mum, in uh, 1977? I said, yes, the year my mum died. So my mum died in the July and Elvis in the August and I remember everybody grieving Elvis Mm. and I was going, no. Yeah. And I couldn't get on this. I was like, what? And yeah. everyone's like, Elvis has died. The headlines. I'm just thinking, no, my mum's died. This is this is really painful. Yet somehow I I wasn't able to express it. The grief for those four years, how did how did that impact you um thereafter? And also not processing that grief. Well, I think I had a lot of anger. Yeah. Mm. I mean my temper was very quick. I don't have that now. I've done a lot of work on it. It's called meditation. <laughs> really? Sorry. Yeah. yeah. And also being able to come to a place of acceptance and, and, and having techniques on. But I think I had a lot of anger. I mean, my father was, you know, was very quick tempered. Um, but then with five kids running around screaming in the house, I think I would have been. So I think that was there. Um and I, I don't know, I just, I think I, what I did was I just kept going uh, it, blindly. I mean, I didn't have any any goal or any vision. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to show them. I, I just kept going. And I think what I did was ignored the deep sensitivity, the deep me. I think I ignored that. So I believed I was this naughty, going fast, quick-tempered individual. Actually, I'm not. I'm really soft. <laughs> I wasn't that. But I didn't know that for a long, long time. Was that a was that sort of exterior, the slightly tougher exterior, some form of emotional reaction or defence from something? Do, do you think? Because if that wasn't who you were, I'm wondering where that must have came, came from. Well, I think it was a part of my personality, my behaviour. But I think I I believed that that was me, and I believed that that was going to be part of my success. You know, being quick witted, I mean, fiery doing things fast, 
which is, you know, been a part of my work, but I think I didn't ever discover the deeper sensitivities. And there were times when I felt vulnerable and there's times I felt lost and I wanted to be understood. And it was like, oh, it's Mary. Mm. And you'd go, well, no, because everybody judged you on that. Mm. It, weirdly, even I think the persona that I had on TV with the orange bob was that, and people would edit me to that. And I would often think, but I spent so much time behind the scenes sitting with those shopkeepers holding their hands or talking to them. But nobody wants. Nobody wanted to see that. They wanted to go. And actually, yeah, it, it, it deeply, there was another part of me that wasn't expressed. You talk about this um, stepmother. I wouldn't even call her that. Really, what would you call her? The woman my father married. I mean, I, I, I again, I, t- I think about that and I, I'm um, talking with my children on this. And um, and when I had to write my memoir, you had to go back on this. And, and I just cannot understand anybody not looking after children who are grieving for their parents. I, I can't imagine, you know, being with anybody or me marrying anybody. I mean, I was ma- I married a second time to a woman and, they, and she took all my children. I can't imagine anybody doing what she did. I, I just, it doesn't fathom in my head. Here's a woman who had a child the same age as my younger brother who left us homeless. Left you homeless? Well, my father left her our family home. We were 19 and 16. We had no home. We had nowhere to live. And she didn't let you live there? Oh, she sold it. She took it. Nine months of being married to my father after 25 years of marriage and a family home that he built. Are you still resentful about that? No. No. Were you at the time? No. That's another thing. I don't feel resent. I don't. No. All we wanted was for dad to be buried with mum. Because, you know, we were brought up Catholics. And when mum died, and she was a deep Catholic, um... They, we booked the plot so that dad, they, they, you have the plot so he can be buried on her same ground and she didn't want that. So we had to bring the family priest and go and see her. And we got that in the end. And I, no, I didn't ever, ever feel a dot of resentment. Do you carry those feelings? Resentment, regret, nope. grudges? I just genuinely don't regret a thing. My life's been extraordinary. Had extraordinary amounts of pain. <laughs> extraordinary highs and it's been colourful and one that I would never have predicted when you think about the pain mm. think of the moments of the greatest pain in your life what are those moments um, undoubtedly my mother dying mm. that that, that um, where you wake up and it's it's like something's on your chest <clears throat> that was and I remember it was sunny sunny hot I, I, could, I didn't like the summer for years really? because it, it was, was July hot July, the late 70s, that summer when it was boiling hot. And I just associated that. And I used to love when it became autumn or cold. You could go indoors and hide. It felt like a security mm. to me. And everybody was out playing tennis and walking happy. And, and happy. And summer, and you just this heavy black pain deep inside you. Um, and both separations, I've been, you know, uh, in two big relationships where I've been married and that, that when you split up a family, and I'm a family person, when you have to sit and go, okay, how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I sit with you, my children, and say, you know, this little life you've got, this is moving on. That was those, I, I actually remember, you know, lying awake 
three nights on the road, not sleeping a dot <laughs> and getting up. There must be so much adrenaline in my body. I mean, I don't know. I, I lost about a stone in weight and I'm pretty slim, but I remember putting on my trousers and they sort of dropped below my hips. I'm like, oh my God. That sort of stress and pain, but you have to keep going because you are responsible for these children. That's what I wanted to ask you about mm. is having been through so much stress and pain, mm. which is just this unavoidable part of the human experience. You can't avoid it, right? No. If you try and avoid it, you probably end up with more. Um, Rumi you- talks about the bruises, the poet, Sufi poet Rumi, the bruises and how we learn from those bruises. Tell me about that. Well, he's just one of my great... I've, I've discovered him, um, a 13th century Sufi mystic, and he talks about the bruises that we hit and how they repair, but that's how we grow. What have you, what have you learned about how to cope with unexpected bullshit and pain that life throws at you? Because, you know, you never see it coming. I mean, a lot of people have had it over the last 12 months, right? Last 18 months with the pandemic. Couldn't have seen that coming. Lots of people's businesses just smashed to pieces. They've lost loved ones. How does one cope with that kind of like grief, whether it's a professional grief or a, you know, um, the the grief of a lost loved one or the grief of a lost relationship? Is there anything you've learned over the course of your life where you think that's probably the best or only approach? Well, there is the wonderful line of this too shall pass, and it does. Um, For me, I have found great, great resolve from some of the great teachings and the philosophers who I have read for a long time now, probably about 15, 20 years. And and even if we look at the basis of most religion, which is a patriarchy and has been completely screwed and bastardised by most men, but actually if you look at the truth at the heart of it, it's much the same thing that we all have to follow. And you have to just connect deeply with your inner whatever you call it, whether it's your spirit, whether it's your soul, whether it's your, as Oprah says, my inner frequency. You know when that gets shoved or you're not aligned, that's when you start to behave and you follow whatever's happened to you rather than actually connecting truly back with your strength, your resource. Um, So that for me has been, and I've tried to guide my children on that and actually found that that has been, I wish someone had done that a little bit more. It was it was shrouded in religion when I was a kid, the Catholic faith, which I just could not connect with at all. You know, my mother literally, you know, going to confession. <laughs> used to go into the church, you see these 80-year-old women beating their chest and say, dear God, you know, I've sinned. And you think, what's she done? You know, this is crazy. This isn't, this isn't life. What, there's some poor old, I'm kneeling down, beating her chest. That's not what the world's about. You know, that that's what I've discovered is if you try and get back to your essence and know and try and align and connect with some deeper strength, whether it's through meditation or whether it's just pause and breathe, it will come through. And it does. I, I mean, that's not to say we should, we have to go through grief. We have to go through mourning. We have to let that go through our bodies. Leaving it in your bodies is the worst thing you can possibly do. And I've done that over the years and I've had my back put out. I've been laid low because it's in there. So I've, I've learned to do that. I had, you know, at first when COVID hit, it was shocking for me. I mean, all my clients in my business, which has been my backbone for 21 years, just closed down and and nobody said, are you guys okay? They just stopped work. I had 55 people. Like, what 
the actual fuck is happening here? And I'm talking to my kids about being connected to your source and I'm like, Jesus wept, I've got to pay for all this and I don't know where I'm going to do this. And I'm just looking down the barrel at 60 and I suddenly went into that complete fear. I was like, you need to pull this back. I, I was actually pretty, I felt, I was a little bit ashamed that I wasn't better, if I'm honest. I, I was, it was such a shock, such a shock. And I've written about it in the first chapter of my book because I want, it was so shocking. And it was like, well, they were falling down like dominoes. The, the, the clients and we were like, what we thought as a business was just going, um, and it just slowly but surely, I kept on connecting back to that sense of me, that deep truth that the world will look after you. There was a great interview I heard and I can't remember who it was. And I, I can't remember, I'd like to think, but I remember he was a, he was a, a, a philosopher and he, and he said, we're talking about money and he said, Think of a time when you've never had enough. Can't think of a time when I've never had enough money. I've had very little money, but I've lived. And I remember just holding on to that. Mm. When when has the world never, ever truly looked after you? And if you can realign back into that sense of connecting and not go for the short-term whether it's, you know, following a route that you're, you're, you're trying to short-term fix it through stress or through that anxiety, and you connect back to that true source, it always works. You said uh, during the pandemic you, you felt, it, it almost was as if you were saying you felt shame that you weren't good enough. I wanted to, to get a more detail on what you mean by that. No, what I meant was that I, 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 the work that I'd done on myself Mm. on knowing that, you know, this too shall pass, connect back, mm. you will be all right, yeah. the world will look after you. I I didn't. But it took about a month and then I was like, okay, and I had all the kids under one, and there was homeschooling happening. I was on, you know, phone every single morning with the CEO of my business. We were on FaceTime. It was, you know, we were on Zoom calls, hideous. It was like, all the time, it was this world that you'd been thrown into where I thought, all right, you know, approaching 60, ease up now, Portis, you know, you don't need to be doing as much. Everything just fell apart. Bam, like that. Like that. <laughs> so, oh my God, what has happened here? So, I was, and I was a bit, a bit disappointed that I wasn't more, you know, um, baby. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you. I was okay. like, sort of done a lot of work on myself, but I got it back. I got it back. She says, "Talk to me about so I want the detail as to because I, I I read that you'd said you you felt like you were spi- spiraling out of control a little bit th- when the pandemic first struck and I think mm. a lot of people can relate to that mm. that sense of um, panic total uncertainty mm. and I mean we had all of our like high street clients completely just cancel all work not even because they were they'd gone bankrupt but because they just didn't have certainty themselves so yeah. they just stopped." Yes. It was either like totally stopped or paused yes. or we, we don't know what's yes. happening here, right? So if I, and you you have, in your agency, you have pretty much all high street <laughs> players, right? So I can't imagine. And I, so I want to know when you say you were spiraling, what does that mean? Uh, well, for example, one of my clients was a big piece of business that we're doing the other side of the world. I won't mention it. It was a million and a half pounds. Bam, closed, done. Stop. Mm. That stopped. You're like, what? What I meant by that was I 
I've never in 21 years ever had anything where I thought financially, I've made myself so financially secure over those years. I've never had anything that thought that might go. Mm. I've never, I've never wanted huge amounts. I like a really good life and I have a very good life, but I've never wanted, you know, the big amounts. I've always thought, you know, this is, this is really good. And I, so I was never, I've always shared the pie as it were, you know, I like a big slice of the cake, but I also, (laughs) I like sharing it out. So I was never, oh God, I have the, I've got, I was never that. I like a lovely life. And, and so suddenly this was like, that might not be the case. And you are the young lad you've got to put through school. You might be working till you're 70, whatever to get this back up. And I was like, I don't want to do that. You know, so it was going against my my flow and my energy as well, you know, that I wanted to go off and do other things. I was ready to go and do the the things that one should be doing at 60 plus when you've had a very big career and doing stuff that, and I, I was suddenly going, oh God, I've got to get this back on. And so I just didn't like the way that that frightened me. It did frighten me. You know, there were sleepless nights. Um. But then suddenly this place of acceptance came and you realise there was magical times where I thought, I am in lockdown with all three of my kids, you know, one of which had left home, one who was doing a master's and one who was eight. This isn't going to happen again, you know. And there was times when they were just out in the grass playing around us together. And that's, that's the magic, you know. Mm-hmm. That's the magic for that little man there with his big brother and sister. There were times we just would sit up on the, um, a place near us in Swifts Hill and just look at flowers and draw flowers. And I thought, this isn't going to come again like this. Mm. And so I was able to sort of slowly but surely build back. And things got better. And there's a huge debate now about what the new normal will look like, especially as it relates to working and remote working. And I wanted to get your stance on this whole remote working debate I'll give you my opinion first because my opinion tends to be quite controversial. I tend to think people have overestimated the um, remote working thing. And I say this because I believe that the office is one of the last sort of institutions of like community and human connection. Dating's gone, socialising, Facebook, social media, dating. We now have all these dating apps. And it's felt like in my life, especially as like a 25, 26 year old, whatever, that going to the office was actually one of the places I actually got to meet people in my life. And, and connect and form communities and go to a football team as an adult. And if that all moves to Zoom now, like every other part of my life is dictated by a glass illuminated screen, I worry. Um, and we have had people sat in the chair from mental health psychologists and all sorts. And the, the, the consistent theme for them has been, if you can give someone community and connection in their life, then they, um, then they do better. They are healthier. And I felt like the office, especially, and I know you've got an amazing office. I've read about it. I've, I've read about the atmosphere there and, and how impressive that is. And we also went to great lengths. It's, it's, when I was reading about your office, it felt a lot like mine. Mm. We've, it's not hierarchical. You wouldn't mm. know who was in charge. People are themselves. It's very flexible and open. We don't have these rigid, archaic systems in place. And so it was a really enjoyable place to be. And I would hate for that places like that to be um, to disappear. I think the old office has to change and die and be reinvented. But I wanted to get your take on that. Well, I think you said it. I think, you know, I think I think there's a lot of businesses jumping on the bandwagon thinking how can we, you know, save money on rent? Mm-hmm. Yes. And not looking at the mental health well-being. I've seen this. I've opened my offices. We opened them up as soon as we could. <laughs> uh, we have two days where we say we want everybody in mm-hmm. 
because we believe that is everything you've talked about. And I know even when I go in and I will see them all and we will have a laugh and we'll talk about stuff that's not even in the work world, but those nuggets, those little messages, those little nuances that happen are what makes us human. It's ridiculous to think we do. I heard Google aren't opening theirs up for another year and you think, what the actual, stop this. Have they actually asked their people? I have a young daughter who's been working at home consistently since she went out to the world of work and it is not good for her mental well-being. And I have watched my children get up at 8am and go straight on Zoom. That was, where's the the travel time where you listen to a podcast or you listen to a piece of music or you read something or you bump into someone on the street and say, morning, do you fancy a coffee? Yeah, I was like, where's that gone out of our lives? We take this away and we take what it is to be human. If you, when I did my high street report, I talked about exactly what you're talking about. We lose this. We lose what Jane Jacobs, who wrote The Death of the American City, back in the 60s, well before I talked about this, she talked about those little things where you bump into someone on the street and you say, morning, are you getting a newspaper? And you say, can your daughter babysit tonight? She said, these little things are trivial, but the sum isn't trivial at all. It is a social infrastructure, a web of security that makes us human. The office is the same. The office is the same. Now, I started in my office with saying, you've got a baby, you can bring it in bring dogs in. This was like 10 years ago. What? You know, we need to ease up and realise that we need more of this in our lives. I've had to sublet parts of my office because we had too much space, but we bloody went out and sublet and fought because we wanted to keep it because I knew that this was deeply important, especially to your generation. And, you know, I know there's people and, and my kids have seen it. They, they, they said the, the sort of 40 plus is, yeah, it's nice having some time. I, I understand that. You can pick up the kids. You can, of course, but let's get that balance. Let's get that balance. And you're right. The more we close down, the more we squeeze our little souls because those small trivial things are what make up our lives. I know that. So I would be so pro it. And I I really think this needs to be the things that are part of our society, which are deeply important, that do need bloody government intervention. I know Tories don't want to intervene and it's a free market and all that crap. Transport's one, our high streets are one, our, our national health service is another, and the way we work and connect, I think, is another. So I would be putting this on the agenda. I heard it on one of those what is it called, question times, which I keep getting asked to go on. I think, oh, dear God. Um, and I was listening to it. There nobody, it was all these sort of ageing politicians who weren't running businesses, who didn't see the impact of not, of, of getting together. It's, it's vital. Please, please, anyone listening. And if you're listening and you're a millennial or a Gen Z and you don't think you've got any power, pull together, get your pals and put pressure at the top and ask them, open back up. I think that clip will go viral on LinkedIn. So that's that's great. I think you're going to reach a lot of people with that one. <laughs> My LinkedIn's very highly engaged. So I think that'll bang. Um, but no, I, you know, I think that I'm more at ease because I think in the professional world, it's going to become a battle of um employees choosing where they want to spend their time and where they want to work and so my objective here isn't to so what I what I tend what I feel like I saw was these kind of fragile dare I call them leaders in business 
doing all this kind of virtue signaling on on social media and online going oh we're going to let our employees decide and if they want to work and I've said publicly like you as a leader you have to have a backbone and your company culture should be reverse engineered from the mission so you know if you're if you're I don't know building cars then you, you need your people at the factory but also work should be it should offer more than just pay and if it is to offer more than pay something meaningful it would be community connection and these things so my stance as an employer is i'm going to create the environment which offers you more community than you're going to get anywhere else good pay more free more flexibility around things that matter in your life kids etc and i think i'll be able to hire all your staff that you have working from a zoom screen at home and i think eventually you'll figure that out and you'll go back but yeah and that's my sucker yeah (laughs) that's what i think i think it's a competition of like you you know what i mean with you you know it's it's look you you as i say you're younger i I remember when i wrote work like a woman i was like looking at this and thinking who who created the codes Mm. who wrote this shit how do we want to work i want people in my business that have a voice that feel i will sit with a 23 year old and i know we'll sit and have a great conversation as much as i will with a 45 year old who's running the business I, we've actually put that with these two days when the chief exec's in, we want everyone in because this is the time when we learn. This is the time we laugh. And we really do laugh. I mean, I'm the biggest joker, the biggest kid in the office. And my, and my daughter's been coming in so she can get some just some interaction. She works in food policy because something completely different. And she goes, Mum, you're the biggest kid. I said, I know. I need people around me. I need it. And I love to laugh. And it's just fantastic when you're in an office and you hear that. And it's not difficult, this stuff. You know, it's all about when you feel as confident as you do, you're able to give up that control. Mm. Yeah. That's what you're giving up and saying, you know what, I, I know who I am and I want you who works with me to know who you are. And so let's give up that control. That doesn't mean that I'm going to have any lazy bastard coming in and, you know, sauntering in whenever they want and taking, no. You know, I talk about the kindness economy. The kindness economy is doing what's humanely right. It's not taking the piss. So you have very, you know, strong ethos and ethics and guidelines of what you believe your business is and where you want to go. But let everybody be themselves within that. And part of that is connection. I mean, it's fine for me sitting in my North London, you know, home working or I'm in the Cotswolds. What about the ones who I've seen them on Zoom in their bedroom sharing a flat? You're waking in there and you're doing Zoom. And if any owner of a business or organisation isn't understanding that, shame on you. And and think about it, they're then probably picking up a phone to do their dating. Then when they're hungry, they they pick up the phone and open Uber Eats and deliver and order their food. And it's conceivable that this generation, and I, I actually write about it in my book, I show how we're getting more and more stagnant as the years go on because we're optimizing for productivity and financial gain as opposed to human connection. We're actually optimizing, we're doing everything in our power to sacrifice human connection and socializing and even things like exercise and movement for increased productivity. And um, I think it's time to... You know, do I think the government would, would be effective in intervening? I mean, I don't. Oh, I've given up on yeah, that. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know what they, they would do. It ain't going to come from them. They had some like loneliness. I think Theresa May appointed the first ever loneliness czar for the UK. Who was that? Jesus. I don't know, but They'd I think like, on your door there. dystopian like image of this, like these like tannoys in the streets being like, fucking talk to each other. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, no, so I just feel like. Stop <laughs> me and have a chat. I think, um, I think it's going to come, that's why in my book, I, I think it's going to come from business. I think it's going to come from people like us changing that. 100% agree. Yeah. I think it's not 100% agree. Politics. I think once we get past this little woke virtue signaling thing, which leaders are doing now, where they're like, well, just let our employees do whatever they want and they can just be all at home, whatever. 
I think then you'll have the second wave of that, which is, um, which is reality. Um, you need to talk about it on your show. You need I to know, talk yeah. about this when you're doing business. You need to get this out there. Yeah, you need do, to yeah. be a voice for that because, yeah. you know, it's um, it's only by sharing our voices and having an opinion. It doesn't matter who knocks us or who comes back that you go, no, this feels yeah. right. This feels right. This is deeply important. Yeah. Deeply important to the next generation. You know, we've really fucked this planet for you guys, you know, my generation. I've, you know, we, the generation before me, the, the, um, the baby boomers, they know that. So we have to, we have to hold on to something deeply precious here. And there is a movement and understanding that's greater and deeper. We were blind. We were blind consumers. We thought that having it all was having more stuff and living a life while we slowly killed the planet and our well-being. So it has to be you guys that go, no, if we get one thing out of this, that's going to be that, that we're going to change all those ridiculous ideas that my generation and the baby boomers bought into. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. You say they're having it all and having more stuff. We thought that was it, which leads me into something else I wanted to talk to you about. I read you'd said um, that you were in the public eye, you're making more money than ever, and it was extraordinarily exciting. But at the age of 48, you found yourself crying almost every day. Mm. I was probably physically exhausted. Um, I just didn't get that joy, you know. I just was on this, I was doing TV shows, radio shows. I had my own collection. I had the business. I had two kids. It was it was crazy, and and I was the matriarch. I was the, the centre. It wasn't like, you know, I had some husband who was raising. It was me, you know. <clears throat> and I thought, yeah, but I. And the more that comes, you'll know this. The more it comes, the more it comes, the more it comes. It comes, keeps coming, keep coming, keep coming. You got to do this, got to do that. And there were parts of it that was just, you know, incredible. I look back and think, what some great years. But I was exhausted. And you're not allowed to say that. Actually, I was thinking about that. At that time, there would be those, you know, women on the front of the Sunday Times magazine like that. We can't show our pose, but it'd be like that. You can have it all. <laughs> they got eight kids and they would get up and they would be doing, you know, yoga at 6 a.m. and then having a global call with China or whatever. Then, you know, they'd be bringing, dropping the kids off at school while chatting to God knows whoever, sorting out the day. And you just thought, oh, God, how shit is that life? Where are you? Where are you? And I lost me in that. It, it, there wasn't times where it wasn't fantastic. There was. But where was I? I didn't stop to breathe. I didn't stop to truly connect. Truly connect with me. And I remember I went away um, to some very expensive spa place where it was all 
om shanti and downward dogs and eating <laughs> stuff. <laughs> and everyone's all this, you know, you go where rich people are because you got money and you go and you discover you. And, um, and I remember sitting in this yoga session and I just was crying. And I was like, oh, please stop, please stop, Mary, please stop. And there's all these sort of women in their Lululemon and I was going, just crying. And I thought, and I went in to, um, there was this wonderful Indian guru who used to sit in this little room that you could go and meet and chat with. And I remember going in to see him and he didn't say a word and I just was crying. I didn't want to speak with him, but I wanted to go to the bookshelf that was behind him because I knew there were some books there. And I picked up Eckhart Tolle's uh, New Earth. And I just took it and as I left, he went, that's the right one. <laughs> and I went back to my room and I read it. And I read it on the beach day, so I was like, oh, my God, I've got the world wrong. I've just completely got this wrong. And that was a start of my journey. It took many years. I'm still, you know, getting, still partly hybriding that life. I'm never going to sit in an ashram. But I, I discovered how to connect back truly with me and stop loading this stuff in your life, Mary. And, and, and saying no. Two questions there, which is regarding this book, this mm. Eckhart Tolle book that you, you, you talk about, um, A New Earth, what was it? What was the, the key lessons that it imparted on you about life and how you were living? I'm, I was living totally outwardly to my ego and my persona. Mary Portis, Mary with Bob, Mary the businesswoman, Mary the mother. I was not connecting truly with who my spirit, my soul. So everything was done to feed that. And you believe that that is you. You believe that that is your personality. You believe all of that. You talk Um, about you thought you'd become a bit of a caricature. Oh, for sure. But I also milked that. That was very profitable. (laughs) 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 But, you know, I knew it was brand Mary, the red bob, the rings. Hmm. You know, I've always loved fashion. I've always loved But it was very much, you know, a signature. So... And, um, yeah, of course. I mean, I, I advise businesses globally on brands. I was, I suppose, a brand myself. And I, I just didn't want to be that anymore. Philosophy is very clear on this idea of, like, abandoning your true self and, mm. where, and the mm-hmm. consequences your of ego, that. Your ego, your outer ego. Yeah. 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 And it seems like such a clearly re- losing game. And I think people listening to this are probably have to, you're, well, you are some stage in the process. You've either... Um, you're probably you're either at the start and you've not yet tried to abandon yourself because you think that you know because the outside world has convinced you and incentivized you to do so especially social media Mm. that'll have you Mm. trying to abandon yourself Mm. and become the kardashians whatever Mm. whatever Mm. or you are in the process of um abandoning yourself or trying to and you're feeling the, the sense of despair and probably um lack of orientation that comes with that or you've come out the other end which it kind of sounds like you've 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 got to where you've realized that you try to abandon yourself and the only true answer is to to be yourself because everything else is despair you either succeed in abandoning yourself as this one i think it's called stodard this swedish philosopher used to say if you succeed in abandoning yourself then you end up in despair if you fail in abandoning yourself then you end up in despair so the only true true path to to joy is to accept who you are Yes, I think, you know, the thing is, it's, you know, it's knowing what the truth is. It it doesn't mean that we're not going to have this. We are truly connecting on a truth here. I don't think we're, you know, performing. But 
part of it is performative because we are doing a job that's going mm. to be this podcast. But it's being on the path. Some people never even know that path's there. Mm. You know, most people don't. And that, you know, it, I remember when I first discovered it and people like, don't, you know, don't talk about that because you might sound a bit odd on, you know, spirituality or blah, don't talk about that. And you're like, and I didn't for a long while. You know, I, I even was chatting to a great producer at the BBC saying, why isn't there a show on something like this on the BBC? And like, no, don't mention spirituality in the BBC at the moment. And you're like, what? This, this needs to get out there. And it's not hokey pokey stuff. This is our truth. And I think what I've tried to do is to allow the people who work with me express that and know about it. And we share it. We share it in the business. And it just opens this whole thing up. And there are times when you have to be, as I say, performative and be, I'm Mary Portas, you know, going out, I'm working, I'm writing a piece or I'm doing a course, but I'm rooted in who I am deeply. And I think it isn't whether, whatever we call it, whether it's spirituality, whether it's our soul, whether it's our spirit, whether it's our truth, whether it's our vibration, whether it's our, you know, mm. whatever, our vortex or our frequency, as mm. Oprah says, Whatever, getting back to that. You know, I, I remember <clears throat> I was listening to the um, lovely Irish uh, Irish poet, and I'll think of his surname and I'll think about it, and they'll all come to me after I've done this. But anyway, <laughs> I remember him talking about when he used to give the last rites, he used to be in Ireland, and he'd go to give the last rites to whoever was dying, and he'd go in and he'd see these little pinched faces that had lived a life that wasn't in line with their true self because they couldn't they had no choice and he just said it used to make him feel so so sad and then he would give them the last rites and he would literally see the pain on their faces their skin just un unstress and unwrinkled because they were able just to be and that is the greatest gift I think we can give to anything and, and to our kids you know I mean I put them through a great academic system because I could but I always said, you choose. I remember my daughter coming to me when she just finished Oxford, she got into Oxford and she was like, um, I was deeply proud. And she finished her degree and she said, mum, I know everyone's going to expect me to go in and make a lot of money. I don't want to do that. And I said, why are you explaining that to me? Like, you know, I'm really going to judge you on that. And um, she wanted to do something that just connected, not with what, she, but with where her truth was. And that's the only thing I think we need to try and find in life. Now, your truth probably was that, you know, you wanted to get to that place where you were able to say, I did this because that's the truth that was important to you because everyone else was telling you you can't do something. Mm. You're not sitting in this system. I was much the same. Much the same. I, mean, you know, I, I met some old school friends. <laughs> they were like, whoa, you know, my life. Because I was just always the one in trouble or... I remember getting 17% in physics and thinking, oh, I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. And I was like, oh my God. I was like 17. I never felt embarrassed. I was just like, I knew I was a bit different as well though. You know, you felt different. I oh, did feel 100%. different. 100%. I felt different. But I wanted to be like the middle class girls that were living in Chorley Wood. And I came from the working class. So it was the kids from Watford that got into the grammar school that, that were the sort of, that parents didn't have the money. We used to get the bus out. And then the middle class from Chorley Wood and all those areas, mm. to, their parents used to drop them right. off in cars. Right. And then they'd get to the sixth form and they'd drive in themselves. I was like, oh my God, I want to be this. And then I went, nah. Mm. <laughs> nah. 
I don't want to be that life. I want my life. I want my life. Brony Ware talks about the same thing. She interviewed people on their palliative patients, I think it's called. On their Who did this? Brony Ware. She was a, a, an Australian palliative nurse. I don't wow. know if that's the right word. Wow. And she interviewed people on their deathbed and asked them one question, which was, what's your biggest regret as Ooh, they were dying? Wow. The num- and she re- released the blog in it. The number one regret of the dying, as she writes it in her blog, was, quote, not living a life true to myself. Oh, man. I remember watching the film of Alan Turing and it just actually heartbreaking. And here was a gay man who could not live his life. And I just thought, that has got to be. I think that's sort of... The 50s and 60s was worse than any time. You know, that American dream of the housewife and being the, the two kids and living the American dream of the ha- And actually, you had to suppress your sexuality, your frequency, your truth, your love, your ability to soar. Isn't that just the worst? Torture. 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 Daily, hourly. Yeah. Deep yeah subconscious torture almost yeah and it's still going on in Hollywood yeah you you married a man I did marry a man then a woman then a married woman and I'm with a woman now well I never it's interesting I I don't I don't know whether female sexuality is particularly different from male sexuality but I I've been in love with two men in my life and I've been in love with two women I've never sort of, I never as a child thought, oh my God, I'm a lesbian. I fancy Linda Evangelista. I've got to do something about it. And I had relationships with women. I had relationships with men. And uh, it just didn't ever bother me. Um, but once I had fallen in love with a woman, I remember, you know, saying to my sister, she was like, but you're not a lesbian. I said, well, I don't know what I am. Do I have to put a label to it? And the interesting thing is, when I did, and you know, and married Mel, that all the prides and the, you know, they all grab hold of you and put lesbian. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, I've got to do this for the sake of all of you and be a voice, which I wanted to be. But you kind of also go, now you're also labelling me. Yeah. It was a really, but I also don't want to let you down, Stonewall. And I will do the opening speech at Pride because I know you need women. And I've just had another one that came through on, you know, LGBT, Virgin Radio Mary, would you go and do like, I don't want to be also categorised in that way because I'm not that. It's a form of prison as well though, isn't it? Well, it is. But I also don't want to not be a voice because I think it's important for, you know, when when I did uh, meet Mel, there was was no women in the public eye besides Sandy Toxic who were in same-sex relationships. And I remember this with my children having to, you know, when they went to school, there was no books on it. I mean, I'm talking... What are we? Milo's now 26, so I'm talking, you know, he was nine. Mm. There wasn't. So I thought I had to do that. And I did it. And I, I don't mind doing it. But, you know, there is a fluidity to it. Labels, good and bad, yeah. Those yeah. kind of labels, those like socially categorizing labels where they put you in the label because they, A, maybe want to understand you, but because they want you to rep, like lead the charge of a movement. I get that, obviously, young black, yeah, yeah. you know, guy in yeah. business. There's not actually many many of us yeah. up here in the young black yes. male category. So you kind of go, well, I've got to do that. I like represent yeah. them. <laughs> and I'm only actually half black. I'm as black as I am white because my, mm. my dad's white, my mum's black. And I'm like, I will represent the black, you know, like yeah. stand behind me. Mm. And then you feel, okay, yeah, I, you say, yeah, as you say, uh, yeah, I w- you know, there's probably a net positive impact of me doing that for society. So... I'll take on that uh, responsibility. But yeah. then I go back to all I know who I am. So write what you like. Matter, yeah. Write yeah. what you like and say what you like because I know. Intuition. Mm. 
topic I've heard you talk about a lot. You'd said previously that the biggest mistakes in your life had come from not listening to your intuition. Mm. Mm. What comes to mind when I say that? Which mistakes? I think, you know, I, I think I'll know when I'm, I'm, I needed to have got out of, you know, relationships and it kept telling me something and kept telling me and you're like, oh, no, no, I've suppressed that. I've suppressed it in times where I've, you know, thought in business, I don't particularly like this person and yet they pay me a lot. I've suppressed that and it always ends up, always, you know, you feel it, you feel it. And ideas sometimes, you know, they just come. If you're really, really feeling free and in tune, they just come and they're, they're wonderful. It's been my, it's been my, I'm sure it's yours, but it's been my, you know, ability to sort of feel something deeply and know that that's right. And you can get people that can analyse, put data behind it, logic. And I've listened to them in the past and I've let things go and go, oh, not regret, but oh, that, you know. Even, you know, now I've always thought, I've always wanted to do, and it's just trying to get the idea, you know, a totally sustainable, secondhand, recycled, vintage, take a whole space, like a massive mound that's closed down and create tomorrows where you everything is about, you know, recycled, upcycled, vintage, remade. And I've got to get on and do that, but it's too big sometimes. <laughs> Everyone goes, no, 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 I'm not sure how that could work. How do you... But I just know it will, you know. And so I have to follow the instinct on, on doing that. But I think just just sometimes, you just it's the small things as well. It's just the small things where you feel it's come from there and you push it down because you put too much logic and reason behind it. And I think in business, we need to let that open up so much more. Certainly in my area of business, um, I reckon we ended up with such so many crap businesses because logic, data and systems overtook instinct, creativity and innovation. And we need to bring that back. And, uh, and interestingly, you talking about high streets, what has come back is people understanding the importance of connection and community through high streets. And we will see that coming back. Um, and, I, you know, I had uh, the Labour Party get in touch with me and saying they wanted to re you know, look at what we were doing on the High Street Report 10 years ago. Because when I did it 10 years ago, they didn't understand that. It was all all about bottom line, all about bottom line. What's your view on uh, the younger younger generation coming up? You know, there's a lot of, I think we talked off off microphone about um, some of the themes coming out of, you know, this this, uh, Instagram generation, like, you know, it's like really binary cliches, like find your passion. There's this idea that like um, working hard is now toxic. Um, and just generally, what you, what, what's your, what's your, if you were to impart advice or you were to give a perspective on this kind of like Instagram generation who and their perspective of the working world, um, what advice would you have for them? I think, you know, there's, there's, there's the good and the bad and the ugly, isn't there? I mean, I think it, it's, I think it's a really tough world to be in that you are always on. Mm. That's a very tough place to be. Mm. Um, And I purposely, you know, don't do as much, even though I should be, you know, because I just think I only want to do something when I really have something to say. And I know it drives some of my agents around the bend. As in social media. Yeah. And I think it's deeply difficult. I think we've got two strands coming through. I think it's used as an incredible place for voice and change to happen. And I think the Gen Zs are 
going to be probably the best generation that we've seen in a, in a very, very, very long time. And the more I read about them, the more my, I have a social anthropology unit in my agency, the more we research this, the more I utterly love them. And I'm more, I want them to make this world better. And I think they will. And you young millennials, absolutely. I think, and I think there's a lot that comes out of it that's fantastic. The other part of it is, oh boy, I would love to change what are now used as icons and role models, especially around beauty, fashion and young women. It is just too much to live up to. And I I, I find it, that I find just terribly stressful for individuals and the way that they've been sold, how they need to look, how they need to behave, how their body needs to be, what their beauty regime should be. It's it's ridiculously tough. And I, you know, I, I live in a society where I'm seeing a young generation that are pushing against that, but there's an awful lot of young women particularly, and men mm. out there, who, how they are looked and how they're perceived and what their life is like. And and 40 pluses. I, I look at some people on Facebook and I think, really? You're still doing this shit? <laughs> you need to go out there and show what new shoes you've bought or what you had for brunch or where you ate? Really? Really? Mm. Isn't it a bit of a pyramid scheme and not a pyramid scheme, maybe like a network marketing scheme in some respects or, uh, or some kind of like network effects? Because what's happening is you let's say you've got, I don't know, the Kardashians at the top. Then you've got people below them looking up at the Kardashians and thinking, fuck, do you know what? I need to get a fake bum and I need to change this and I need to change this and I need to post when I'm wearing my Chanel bikini on the side of that mm, boat. Mm. So they follow suit, mm. which then cascades downwards mm. and everyone's just trying to... This is what I'm talking about, the pressure. I'd love the Kardashians to turn around and say, let's not buy any more stuff and let's recycle. Wouldn't it be brilliant? Yeah. Imagine what that would do for consumerism. That's probably the, the most impact they could have on the world is yes. if they just cut out the fakery yes. and... Yeah. lived more ethically but they just they're pinned back by the financial incentive but I you know when I was doing my research for my book and looking at the spend on the pressure on young people who follow the Kardashians to get the new this the new that it's insane mm. it's insane because I used to look back and think well you know my mother couldn't afford stuff so we just we just put up with it but we weren't sold the marketing dream mm. we weren't sold this shit mm. And this has gone so deeply into society, so deeply, that we do need people like you that are going, this is just crap. Standing up and saying, this is crap. And anyone comes on Dragon's Den trying to sell that crap. So it's, <laughs> it's almost like the way I see it is um, like social media and this, that, the world, the Kardashians, it's like they're holding a bit of your self-esteem hostage. And the ransom, of the apparent ransom is you've got to go get that bag too or whatever. And then when you pay the ransom, you get the bag you don't get your self-esteem back and it just increases. The ransom just increases. Now they're like, now you've got to get an even better bag. And it's just endless, like... That's exactly what I wrote about. I was part of that. When I was creative director at Harvey Nicks, I, was, I sold this stuff to people, thinking, mm. yeah, bloody brilliant, look. I'm going to make this sexy. And and, uh, and it was, it's not dissimilar. Now it's just got faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. And it is totally all based on, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. We have to convince them that there's yeah, something do. they don't have but need. We really need this revolution. There is part that are doing it, but there's a whole part of society that are still buying into this, this lack of self-esteem. And we, as marketers, have been selling that for years. I've definitely been selling that. Yeah, so have I. At my previous business. So, mea culpa. You said, you know, it was something that I, I thought maybe I was the only person in the world that also felt, which was before we started recording, you said, 
that you don't get excited about things. Yeah, I mean, I have great things in my diary or someone says, oh, aren't you excited you're doing that tomorrow? And I just think, no, I just don't get excited. And you said you don't either. I don't know. Well, I so I didn't actually say anything, but then uh, my, my camera guy here, Jack, that's worked with me for some time, says Steve always says that. And it's because there's people who will say to me, oh my God, you're doing this next week, or you're going on holiday, or you're going to this place, or you're speaking in Dubai. Are you excited? <laughs> and no. Yeah, when they hit me with the question, I go, no. No. As if I try and work be. that through because I've never yeah. sat with anyone and worked that through yeah. or talked that through, and and it and it, but it doesn't stop me really enjoying like and experiences, the experiences, in the and there and now I don't put it up there. Maybe that's the thing. For me, I thought, and I might be wrong, but maybe we're going to work it through now. I thought my lack of excitement was a defense mechanism because I also need to defend against going down when bad things happen. So I think over time, I've just. Did develop this character trait where I'm just here in the moment focused on what I have to do right now and I'm trying to be stable and calm so I don't swing upwards with great news I don't swing downwards too heavily with bad news and that also means I don't swing too far into the future or swing too far into the past and that's it, a really good maybe analysis that's maybe it. that is maybe it. that's it because my friends get excited about small Holiday. things and big things oh well, I've got dinner I've got dinner I've got that table yeah. at Brat and you're like great but it doesn't it doesn't matter. excite me yeah, yeah i don't know that maybe that is maybe that is a subliminal thing that we've both done i i hadn't thought about that but i felt i even had it like my 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 partner said to me oh you've got that aren't you excited and i said no and i actually I have to tell you i don't get excited but <laughs> it you was like i was going into therapy yeah i have to sit you down and tell you i yeah, don't yeah, yeah. get it that doesn't mean i don't feel joy yes that doesn't feel, mean i don't feel complete mm but I don't get excited. Or maybe someone's going to listen to this, some really incredible psychoanalyst, and they're going to go, we're going to, we'll work this out and tell you why. It is really interesting mm. because you, as I think it's so important for you, to, for you to say what you've said there, which is you still enjoy yourself yes. when you're there and doing yes. these things, but it's the like future anticipation. And, and I, th- I think that must come from living, having lived a very intense life where the most important thing in your world is being in the present right now and fixing the thing yes. right in front of you yes and you've probably not had a ton of time to sit but then also also have to say the privilege of having had so many great experiences yes you know so there's not really a restaurant you've not been to that's been amazing you know like you've been to amazing restaurants you've been to amazing places you've done achieved amazing things so you're you're sort of like threshold of what might but it doesn't seem that anything excites me do you know, I remember, really? now you've said something, and I remember just, I, I think it's being what you talk about, totally connected. I remember a true surge of joy coming through my body when I was walking through a supermarket. This is nothing to do with the supermarket. But I had my baby daughter in front of me, and I had my husband with me, with my little son, and I was totally in a place of joy in a supermarket. But there was something about this place of these two beautiful kids I had, love. It just, and I remember this surge coming up. I'm like, God, I feel really happy. And I've had other times like that. And they've not been sitting in Cannes at a restaurant. They've been really fundamental, simple, simple, simple places where I felt that surge of joy. Okay, where you where you feel your and I can feel it now, right? Where you can put it and you can feel your energy going through your body, which is beautiful. And I would 
rather have that than this excitement. If I told you that later today you were going to walk down the street and feel that same surge of joy that you got from the supermarket, would you be excited? No. If I told you now that when you walk out this this door, you're gonna as you walk out down the street, I promise you, you're gonna feel that surge of joy. Would you be excited to? No, but I'll feel that warmth and that energy going through my body that thinks, yes, I want to be in that place. But it's not excitement. And because what I was trying to figure out there is if excitement to us, I was trying to figure out if we've, the reason why we don't get excited is because we've realised that true joy doesn't come from the restaurant or from the holiday or from the, the going and doing the TV thing or whatever. It's actually really, the joy comes from something that's actually very hard to predict it's like those really meaningful moments and so when someone says aren't you excited to go to do that experience on tv you think well that's not joy and in fact joy will come in those really random moments random yeah i sat in the garden with my sister last week and i my sister i love my sister she's just one of the great people i know she was always quieter as a kid and she always let me be like she was three years older but she it's always like, you know, when she was 18 and I was 15, she'd mm. take me out to the clubs. Like, no one done it. You know, like, she was like, come on. It was, and I just sat with her. And it was just a moment we were just sitting together. We weren't speaking. And it was just that moment where that connected. I can see it in your face when you, when you yeah. describe these moments. Yeah. Your face lights up. Yeah. That, that's joy. That's, what, that's why when you talk about the office mm. and we talk about the high street, it's the trivial, what we think yeah. are trivial. That's what makes the world. That's what makes life. That's what fuels us. Laughter in the hallways and those little jokes and <laughs> catching up on what happened on the weekend and stuff. Those Totally. Or like me trying to wash the dog in the garden the other way. And I, my partner nearly was wetting herself laughing because I couldn't get the dog. And I was like, bring him over here. And the hose was going everywhere. And it was just that moment of madness and joy that the little dog running around the garden, it was just those things. But also maybe we don't resonate. I was just thinking then with the word excitement because think about what that word means when i think of the word excitement <gasps> i think <gasps> that, that's not a that's not a state that i live my life in never so when someone says are you excited i think well am i <gasps> no, no no never no. so it, maybe the, it, there's a better question which is are you looking forward to the experience or are you um i don't know maybe there's a, a better no, question but i don't do that either yeah looking forward isn't because you're not looking forward no. but it, you know are no. you happy you're doing it i don't you know there's an answer <laughs> So maybe we're happen. deeply evolved and we don't know it yeah or just like deeply depressed and we don't know <laughs> <laughs> your mission now in life seems to be focused a lot on um as you say like making businesses kinder and it seems to be much more philanthropic than mm. it is it's ever been before why why does that matter i don't know it just came to me it's one of those things it came to me a certain point certain time or <clears throat> well i i i about five, ten, I can't remember the years where they go, but about seven years ago, I looked at my business and thought, I remember it, no, it's longer than that, it was eight years ago, and I, my little baby son was born. And um, this beautiful little man came into the world, and on he, he was born on the Monday and on the Saturday, my 18-year-old son was going out into the world to university. And, I mean, obviously, this you can imagine the emotions that are going through my body. There's this young man that's come into this world and this young man is going out into this world. And it was just visceral. And I, 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 I do cry when I'm feeling, you know, um, happy or sad or I listen to great music. 
I can. It, it clears me, especially if it's Nick Cave. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I kept on crying and just this movement. And I remember sitting with Milo, who was going off to do, he's a very bright lad, he was going off to do uh, philosophy and economics. And we were just chatting on the bed. And I remember clearing his bedroom and there's a little cricket bat there and I don't get emotional because I remember going off to find the cricket bat and I remember also being really fucked off because all the sports shops are closed and they become JB Sports and JG Sports, you know, like, like, no, that's not a sports shop. I want to go to a sports shop where someone says, I'll give you the cricket bat and knows about sport. And But I, I found one in, in, in Sherburn where a friend lived. I found this little, and I was looking at the cricket bat and thinking all the memories, you know, it was just that lovely and I'm pecking his stuff and I'm just looking at his little hands sitting next to me on the bed, all big hands and, so what do you think you'll probably do? He goes, well, I don't know, because I'm doing economics. He goes, and I suppose I'll end up going into finance in the city. And I was like, I just remember this, no, like this deep. And I remember sitting with him thinking, that's not your frequency. That's not you. I mean, you're, you're, you're go-getting your, but you've grown up with me and you're going to have to change you to go into that world. And then I looked at little Horatia, the baby, and thinking, this is, this is what we all do. We all bloody have to change. And I thought, actually, I've, I've done this. I've, I've, I've changed. I became, you know, when I was on the board of Harvey Nichols, the businesswoman. When it was Mary, Queen of Shops. When it was Mary, whatever, on the TV. I was that. What the hell am I doing? Am I still doing this? And so I went on that journey then. And I, that's when I decided to change the whole way that I ran the business. And I wrote Work Like a Woman on that, realising that actually what I had suppressed was my deep sensitivity. And I called it my feminine instinct because I do believe the power of the feminine has been suppressed over millennia. There's no two ways about it. There's no two ways about it. We have created a male-dominated alpha energy in the world because we killed, and we through through the church, millions of women who were the sages who were, we've suppressed femininity. And that power is the power that's going to take us through into the next part of the world. And I started looking at this and I started, I never saw myself as a feminist because I, you know, look at me, I looked at my life, why do I need to be that, you know? And I started to go, what are we doing with our children through work that we, this young man has to suppress his creativity his sensitivity to go and be a bastard, basically, because they get to the top. This was at the time of, you know, money, power, fame. Those are the ones, your Trumps, your Philip Greens, your loads of money, yeah, ignite them, they're brilliant, yeah, service. And I started to go on that journey then. So that's exactly when it was. It was eight years ago, nearly nine. And I wrote the book, created a new culture in my business, opened up, started to talk about stuff that made me feel vulnerable, started to bring in this more compassionate way of working and actually connect with what would have been seen as soft skills or HR department. Actually, I believed were going to be the new power skills. Love, kindness. Actually, because before, you know, 12 years ago, if someone wasn't working, I'd be like, oh, done, out. (laughs) You know, boom, on to the next one. You're not good enough. How do you do that? What's going on in that person's life? I remember discovering one of our great creatives suffered with depression. He'd actually told someone else. 
No wonder he's like that. I've never looked at that before. Okay, how do we work with this? So I started on that journey then. And then I realized that, you know, over the years, that even the planet that we were killing was all part of this. The way that we suppressed ourselves in search of more. We've just killed the planet. We've killed our well-being. And I just kept on going on the journey. And then I did a TED Talk on it. Um, and they asked me to do a TED Talk. And I thought, what am I going to talk on? It just kept on coming up, this theme. So I talked on, when I called it, we need the kindness economy. We need an economy that isn't about growth, that isn't about money at any cost, that just doesn't measure linear. How do we create well-being? It's not that I'm anti-capitalism. I like money. How do we create a world for that? And I started to go on it. And then COVID hit, bam. And it was there. It kept going, this is what you're meant to be doing, Mary. And I'm looking at how to get back to make the same money as I did before. And all the while I'm chasing that, <gasps> my God, my business is going there. And this voice is going, just there. It's where you're meant to be. And then one day I woke up and, and I rang my chief exec and I said, I think this is where we need to go. And she's amazing. And I'm also thinking, well, she's 40-something with two kids and she's, you know, in this business with me. It's all right, me going, this is amazing. Can we, but I think we should go this route. And we talked about it and talked about it. And just, and the more I talked, the more it opened up. And my head of strategy and my anthropology team, we were all like, yes, actually, we need to be advising business on being better, better to people and better to the planet. And that's how it all started. And that's my journey now. That is it. Am I excited by it? No. But do I get up and think that it's deeply in there with me and, and I just have to follow it now? And that's where I'm... I hope that explained it. I'm no, you have. You've done it. A, it was really powerful and I think it, it perfectly ties into all the prior themes of listening to your intuition and, um, and I think that's super, super powerful. I, I have two more questions for you. One of them relates to what you've just said there, which is... Um, in a very practical sense, what does that mean for a business to become more kind? You, you talked about people and planet, but in terms of like the boardroom, pay, you know, how- all of that, all of it. It's actually looking and going. Uh, we we know that Simon Sinek wrote the great books on you know why rather than just that. It's looking at w- what your business. Look, is here for? What is your philosophy and your purpose? Really understanding that and connecting it deeply to you on a human level, first of all. And, you know, you, you've got a lot of wokenism going on and, oh yeah, our purpose is to make the world better. No, you know, what is your true purpose as a business? And now, once you start to work on that and yourself, and I've done it through the book, you then create the environment through your people, through how you pay them, through how you inspire them, through how you connect to your customers, through the truth of how you manufacture, how you create, how you collaborate. You create a different way of being a business that's not siloed, it's not individualistic. You move from me to we. So everything that you do, you are thinking that bit wider than yourself. It's like being a mother or a parent in any sense. Undoubtedly, I would always put them first. Always. Not even a always. So you think about that in your business. Doesn't stop me being me. Doesn't stop me developing. Doesn't stop me opening up. Doesn't stop me growing. Doesn't stop. But I am being a responsible, connected, kind individual. 
we need to do this with the world. And the reason I put people, planet, profit in that order is the planet's going to go on without us. We'll fuck it and we'll all die, quite simply. And it'll regenerate. It's done that, as we know, ice age, whatever. But we can make that change happen. We can do it by being more humane, by being kinder, and by creating commerce that feeds and gives social progress as well as financial progress. And it's possible. It's totally possible. You know that. Now, obviously, some people go, it's all right from us sitting from our money doing that. Yeah, I've made money. Mm. Yeah, but I'm doing it. And there's people who are doing it who haven't. And mm. those are the ones I take the hat off to. Mm. Those are the ones. And if I can just put a bit of volume on it, then I will, because I've got a bit of a big mouth. And I actually, I, you know, I, you know, I, I, some of the people I admire the most, they, one guy in particular called Naval, he always talks about how if you want to start taking on some of these worlds, the world's big problems like the environment, etc., what you have to do is you have to make sure people aren't worrying about feeding their kids, first and foremost. Because I, I don't begrudge or blame anyone that can't feed their kids that that isn't thinking about saving the environment do you know what i mean because i would be oh, taking, of course you know so there's, there's a bit of sort of fundamental social work that needs to be done for us to get to a pl- place where well i mean we, we can look at that in terms but it's again what was value my mother had very little money but she fed us mm. and she didn't make us obese by buying shit food yeah, that was yeah. too cheap yeah same with fashion and people go oh yeah but that fashion it's, it's dem- dem- democratic everybody can afford it you stand out some of those shops everyone's coming out with three carrier bags of shit that's going to go into landfill or we don't market the hell out of it via that and we tell the truth that buying something that lasts and recycles and upcycles and that you share is actually where the new sexy is. Mm. Yeah, sexy is the word, you know. It's really important. That is important. I call it status. Status symbols we've moved to. Now we're into status sentience. How do we create a world where we understand that being sentient and connecting with experience and life and being generous in the world is more important than symbols. Big move, massive move. And we need to look at the brands. We need to look at power in business. And that's where I'm starting. I wrote down earlier because you said the word and it's been something I've been very curious about, the word meditation. Mm. What role has that played in your life and why did you embark on that practice? Because it steals my mind and your mind is the biggest tool you have that can just fuck you over terribly or it can really ignite you. Amen. Tell me about the upside of meditation as you've seen it. Well, I started by doing little podcasts to listen to someone tell me how to do it because I was a bit hopeless and me sitting still ain't great. Um, And it's just, I I, I do each morning with it. I only do 10 minutes and then I'll try and do it at the end of the evening and I still my mind and I just connect and I feel my energy going to my body and I clear. And any time a little thing comes in that says, "Uh -uh," I go, thought, and then I laugh at it. I don't get annoyed. I just go, (laughs) and I laugh at the me that's the thought that just tells you all this shit. And then I just open up my energy as much as possible. And then during the day where I find myself where I might be going Mm. out of sync, I just have this thing that just says pause. And I pause. And then I relax. And I could be sitting in a meeting like this where I might be wanting to talk more. I just stop and let it come back in. And it's just helped me hugely. Closing the tabs. 
tabs. That's a really good yeah. visual. Closing all those tabs down. That just, they're not great. Lastly, love relationships. Something I think very, you know, career driven professionals like you mm. um, often tend to struggle with for various, mm. for a variety of reasons. Mm. Have you struggled with relationships, love, holding together relationships, investing in them? I don't think I have. I mean, I don't think it looks particularly great that I've got two um, failed marriages, but actually they lived, there were some brilliant years. I knew they were long and they created beautiful things. So I don't see them as failure. I genuinely don't see them as failure. It's a part of my life. And I, I've changed. I, I, I am not the same person that I was when I met or, and I'm on a very different part of my journey and, and that happens. Um, and I think we can just get so hung up on that. You know, I've had incredible, I've had long relationships. No, I've never really struggled with relationships. I don't think. No, I've had, had pretty decent long ones. I, I was on my own the last, which has been the first time in, in ages that was really unique for me, you know. When was this? Just recently, you know, I split up with my wife, Melanie, back in well, three years ago. And I it was, you know, three years on my own. Still, still single now? No, but I'm not going to tell you who with. That'll be a nice headline. <laughs> who are you with? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 it's unfair to them, you know. Okay. It's just no no one in the public eye. And nor do they want, we want to be thrown into it, but. But you I'm found sure. that's, that's yes, super yes. Very exciting. <laughs> that's um very nice, joyous. Yes, lovely. Joyous. But yeah. but but came in a I think I manifested it as well, you know. Really? Yeah, I just thought, oh God, now I'm ready for something. And I, I, I genuinely feel I sort of opened up my we spend so much time feeding energies that just are not worth it. That you just have to keep pushing up. In that three years, what did you what was what did you tell yourself? Because a lot of people, when they when the garage is empty, they just want to fill it with anything. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because mm. that makes them feel mm. they feel complete. Mm. Or you know, when there's someone there, they feel like they need someone just to fill the garage. But what did you do for those three years to patience? I guess, or you know, you talked about manifesting. Yeah, or... Probably one of the most toughest three years of my life. The last really? three years, I I grieved first of all the loss of your marriage. Yeah, mm-hmm. you grieve, and I think you have to grieve, and. Um, Covid hit, not easy. Mm. I had oh, to. Oh gosh, on your own and oh yeah, you're on yeah yeah, and you have your kids and you're resettling where you live. So you you everything changed, everything. So my business changed, my marriage ended, where I lived changed. So it was a huge amount of change. And actually, the last thing I was able to do was bring anyone into that. I had to be with me. Um. Yeah, and it was it was very very painful, very painful, a lot. And I I think it's only in the last six to ten months I've come through it. Amazing. Well, listen, Mary, you've um, been just the best guest ever. Have You're I? So hilarious and intelligent and honest, oh. which is amazing. I need to be I th- more hilarious. I was just thinking, I think- thinking, oh, fuck, I need to be more funny. Am I funny? <laughs> you are funny, yeah. Oh, that's, that's the Irish. I'm not. You're funny through being honest. Though. This is the thing. Yeah. You're just honest. And a lot of people, they skirt around what they, they truly think because they're trying to find the correct, polit- politically correct words or phrases. And you don't seem to give a fuck, which I think makes for great listening. But because- you, you're already there. 
Well, yeah, I, I am. But, yeah, but maybe you're, you're more descriptive, so it's even more hilarious. Um, <laughs> um, but I, you know, yeah, just thank you so much. You no, it's know, my pleasure. And thank you for rescheduling me. <laughs> I know fine. I'm a bit of a nightmare. You were worth my it. You were definitely worth it. You so too, my darling. I really and, appreciate and it. love and luck for all you do. Thank Please you Please so shine much. your light in the world it's needed. I mean it. I'll do my very best. I'll watch you. one decision away from taking your business to the next level and a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud so you can access it from anywhere and the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.